Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast coming at you live from the EIB studios and the Golden Mike. Uh, probably not. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> I haven't listened to Rush. <laughs> I haven't listened to Rush in years, and he's still on the radio. It's crazy. How you doing, Alex? I'm good. I'm excited. Better weather on the uh, horizon here. Last time, uh, wasn't too long ago, I was just in Massachusetts, and there was snow up there. And Actually, it was on April 1st, so wow. April Fool's to us, I guess. But now the weather's getting nice. I'm back in Virginia, looking forward to getting my swimming pool open and braving the waters out of my backyard and all that good stuff. What were you doing up in Massachusetts? Visiting my family. I have a, uh, well, my in-laws are from there. They've got a, oh, a farm with hundred acres or so. And my father-in-law has been in the farming business for, for his whole life and just visiting family. Nice. Good. Yeah. Man. And, uh, how's real estate going? Deals? Good. good. So, on the previous podcast, I talked about uh, the acquisitions guy that I'm working with. And uh, so we've been marketing. And uh, oddly enough, most of our deals have been coming from pay-per-click recently. And over the last uh, two months that we've been working together, I think he's booked about, let's see, 21, 21, 42, about 70000 in fees. Good so, for you, man. Not too bad. How much mail are you sending out to do that? Like, what are you sending? Well, right now? like I said, interestingly enough. Oh, that's right, pay per click. Most of that was from pay per click. All right, how um, much mail are you doing right now? So I'm sending it about twenty thousand pieces a month. Okay. Yep. And I'm gonna, you know, I'm thinking. I was actually talking to Sean Terry last night, and I was, we were looking over some of the stuff that in both of our businesses with mail and. Normally, I like to get into the mailing list and dissect it and all this kind of thing. And, and here's, a, here's a tip, right? So he said, if you're pulling a list, do not let list source determine the equity for you. So he does not like to pull it based on equity. He likes to pull it based on length of ownership. Mm -hmm. And then if you wanted to go in and tweak some things, you could do that. But uh, doesn't like the automated process of, of determining that. So we went through. And we were just looking at a, a, a really good mailing list to pull. And he's like, here's what I would do. And he went da, 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 and pulled it out and said, here, here's it. Send it. I said, well, I want to go in and tweak it. He's like, no, just send it. I'm like, but I wanted to no, just send it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I tell and, you, man. You know, that, that was, uh, it's, it's good to get that sometimes, you know? <laughs> yeah, because you can overanalyze this, can't we? I mean, I'm guilty Absolutely. of that all the time. You know, one of the one of my favorite lists lately have been the, um, and we've kind of slowed down personally for us. We've slowed down our direct mail the last couple months, but we will be ramping it up. I'm tired of hearing all these stories of friends of mine that are, you know, doing a bunch of deals because well they're still doing direct mail. Imagine that. I know. I was just talking to a mutual friend of ours the other day in Florida, and uh, he's having some of his biggest months ever. And who's that? I'll tell you offline. I'd rather oh. not. He's just because he, I don't think he wants to, he doesn't want everybody to know that he's doing so well. 
But sure. uh, he is just sticking to the basics, you know, and and doing really really well, and um, yeah, in a super competitive market. Anyway, uh, I was going to say something else. Oh yeah, my favorite list that I've been using for a while—not the last couple months, but, but you know, few months before that—was uh, the unknown. You said just ignore the equity thing, right? Yeah, unknown list. I, unknown I don't know if you want to sh- if you want to share that. <laughs> oh no. Okay. Never mind. We'll just let people. <laughs> well, figure you can that say out it's the unknown list, but we don't have to say exactly how you pull it. But yes, the unknown list is another great list. It works so good; it's just unknown. <laughs> <laughs> and people who are smart enough to figure it out will be able to figure it out. They will be able to figure it out. Okay, let's go on. We've got a special guest on today. He's from Indianapolis, one of my favorite towns in the Midwest. It's a cool place. And, uh, you know, his name is Steve Richards. And, Steve, this is going to sound funny, but Indianapolis reminds me a lot of Des Moines, Iowa. (laughs) That is funny. You know. Why is that? Why is that? Well, I used to live in Des Moines. Des Moines is a good, nice, clean town. Like simple people who live there think that there's nothing to do in Indianapolis, you know, like it's a boring town, but it's really not. A lot of people in Des Moines, Iowa think it's a boring town. There's nothing to do there, but it's really not. It's a cool, nice place to raise a family. And uh, it's just a, it's just a nice, simple place to live. And that's just my perspective from the outside looking in. And I may be totally whacked, but um, that's my perspective. Do you like living in Indianapolis? Yeah, in Indiana, born and raised. So I guess I can't compare it to other places, although I've traveled quite a few other places. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's a uh, kind of steady eddy as the real uh-huh. estate market goes here. It doesn't go up, doesn't go down a lot, but it is. It's nice, wholesome Midwestern town to raise a family in. You nailed it on the head. And I love raising families. Only one family. I like <laughs> I love yeah. raising my family. Oh, is that a new hobby of yours? <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I wanted to get Steve on the show because he's doing some cool things in Indy. He's been doing deals for a long time, very active in the community there. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, would you? Um, how did you get started in real estate first? Let's talk about that. Okay. Well, a quick background. I went to I grew up here in Indiana, like I said, went to Ball State University and got a business degree and jumped out in the corporate world. So pretty normal starting point for, you know, in business for that a lot of people have. But I did a lot of consulting during the 90s, the late 90s in the dot-com craze. And I got bit by the entrepreneurial bug because I just saw guys with business plans on napkins, you know, getting venture capital and the dot-com stuff was crazy. So I started reading a lot of books like everybody and Real estate just happened to be the thing that I landed on that I wanted to do. And that was in 2004. I just got in with a business partner and we decided we'd flip a few houses together, buy a couple rentals. And the worst thing that would happen, you know, we'd make a little bit of money and have some rentals to sell when our kids go to college and be kind of like a college fund. And six months in, I quit my day job and was doing it full time. And that by the end of that year, we were flipping five houses a month retail. This was 2004? Yep. Cool. Going into 2005. So I started in mid 2004. So by mid 2005, we had a full scale rehab machine going and we started buying rentals. And, um, you know, from there, we just kind of followed the market up and down as things changed. You know, when the market slowed down, we got more into rentals. And at one point we owned a property management business and got pretty heavy into turnkey 
and uh, did a lot of things with you know buying, fixing them up, selling them to people in Israel and California and Hawaii and all over the place and managing them for them. And then I read a book called Traction in 2013. I hate that book. <laughs> I was like, are you I'm kidding? Living my values. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding, dude? No. Uh, yeah. I. What do you mean? No, I'm not kidding. You hate the book hate Traction. Oh, I tried reading it. Now, Steve, I don't mean to steal your thunder. No, you're good. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm curious about this because everybody's like, Traction. I'm actually looking at it on my bookshelf right now. Traction is what changed my business. Oh, man. Uh, something yeah. about – it's hard for me to put a, uh, to pin it down. But like when uh, – I just – when I read that kind of book, I get completely overwhelmed. Like okay. you've got to do all this stuff and the way they paint it, it's such a picture perfect world, you know, like real business, real life doesn't work like that. At least I don't, you know, it's like, it doesn't fit into that perfect mold and everything has a place and there's a place for everything. Maybe that's what it is. Like some people who are really organized and neat freaks and like to have their checklist and check everything off exactly the way it's supposed to go and, and nothing, everything goes according to plan. And this world is just all unicorns and rainbows. Hmm. You know, I get, and maybe I need to give the book more chance. I just read the first couple chapters and I was just like overwhelmed with all of like how perfect things need to be in order to, to go well. Hmm. I get stressed out just thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if like, Steve, if you, you read the book, tell me, am I off my, did you just lose all respect that you, any respect you had for me? Yeah, I'm done with the podcast. I'm going to, I'm going to hang up now. No, <laughs> no, I, I know exactly where you're coming from. Cause I kind of halfway in the same mindset now. So the quick sidebar of that is that book, just, I, I got through it all of it in audio. I did the whole thing. I'm like, all right, this is a great book. And at the time I had my turnkey business and we were managing 350 properties and clients all over the country and world. And, we had, I don't know, six or eight agents in our brokerage and eight or 10 staff people in the office for the investment company. And I had a business like where I could really apply a lot of those things. You know, we had several departmental meetings and budgets and it was very corporate-ish. And the book worked a lot easier at that time. Okay. Because like you said, there I had all the things to put in the places, but when you don't have, it tells you all these places you need to put things and you don't have those things. I know what you're saying about being unsettled a little bit. Like, I don't need to have all this. Because as I've reinvented the business now, I have a a different business partner who is a broker, so I don't own a brokerage anymore. I'm partnered with a broker, and we built a wholesale business, as you know, in Indianapolis. And that's where we spend most of our time is in that business. And we're trying to – we've been like halfway doing traction again over the last year and a half, but we can only take certain things out. Like core values is heavy. That's the thing that really knocked me off my rocker the first time I read it, and I thought, man, I'm built a business – and all I'm, I have 13 different property management arrangements, you know, with all these different clients, somewhat paid quarterly, somewhat monthly. Some just say, keep my money and let it build up and buy me another house. And, you know, we had all this stuff going on and I was doing everything for other people. And I hated the toilets and tenants part of it and running the construction business. And so the very first chapter of core values is what really kind of blew my mind. And when I decided I've got to shut all this down and that was very painful. I mean, letting people go when they were doing a good job and just getting out of a business. And I had clients, you know, all over the place that thought I was going to manage their retirement properties for the next 20 years. And uh, those were tough conversations. And 
but anyway, you know, that I, I love the book. And as we implemented things, I decided I didn't want to do that business that I was in anymore. Huh. So that was a big change. But the second go around, you know, after 10 years doing it the other way, more corporate, because that's what I knew from being in the corporate world. You know, this time around, I'm doing it very different. And I've learned, you know, where the money is really at. <laughs> and it's funny, the things you make more money at are more intellectual and knowledge and experience based, you know, and they're less laborish. Okay. And uh, this time around, we can't, we can't implement everything from traction. So I know what you're saying. So we're heavy on trying to understand our core values and build a culture around the smaller team that we do have, but we don't have all these big departmental meetings and issue tracking things, sessions and whatever. But I think at the end of the day, just to kind of wrap that thought, I, I think the core thing is building the business for you. So it's supporting you, not the other way around. And the first time around, I was supporting the business. I used to fake phone calls coming into my office just because I didn't want to talk to people. <laughs> I couldn't even like leave my office to go to the bathroom wow. for a minute without 14 people stopping me, you know? And I'd be like, Oh, I'd just hold my phone up to my ear and be like, Oh yeah. Put my finger up, like, hold on a minute. <laughs> Cause I was like, I, I just I didn't want to hear about toilets and tenants and contractors again. You know, you, you know it's and, funny you say that and talk about that because when you talk about traction and maybe this is what you mean, Joe, by all that stuff, I mean, all this corporate stuff you're talking about actually like twists my stomach and makes me sick. Well, maybe that's what it was for me. Cause I've been in those corporations where they touted all of their corporate values and the vision. I still can't figure out the difference between a mission statement and a vision statement. <laughs> and the fact that I have to figure that out, like that's so stupid. Do we really want to go back to building what we escaped? Right. Well, that's a new yeah, prison. No, that's, that's true. <laughs> Oh, it's so giving me a lot of clarity to go through that. Yeah, you know, because we didn't want it. Because you're right. Yes. Well, Sean Terry obviously is a big fan of traction, and you know, I'm sure he is. He listens to all of our podcasts, Alex. No, I'm just kidding. But like, it, <laughs> it, it's made a huge difference in a guy like his in his business. Oh, absolutely. But for some people, you know, whatever, you just have to dial it down a little bit. Sure. You know, not maybe have like all these small minutia positions. But if you just like in our business, right, you have yourself, you have the lead manager, you have your dispositions manager, even if you want to do that. But it, the first thing to get, I would say would be a lead manager and that would be your first step. Mm -hmm. That's a good, that's a good step. Good. Yeah. Good. But back to Steve, um, Steve, yeah. you, uh, you sounded like you survived the, uh, the crash, the real estate market crash. Yeah, Absolutely. Talk a little bit about how and and why you survived that. Well, I'll tell you, we actually grew pretty heavily during it. And part of that was our business model, but we saw the crash coming pretty early because we were doing a, a lot of fix and flips. So we saw days on market slowing down. You know, we were pushing prices and we couldn't do that anymore. In fact, prices were declining. And so we got more into the rental game. And when you put the turnkey model behind it, it's pretty easy to sell houses, but that comes with all that work, all that property management and construction. Sure. But part of the reason we were able to grow through that period was we just offered more services to people. And really we were a sales machine and we were still selling houses instead of making them super pretty and having, you know, in our market, we were doing houses that were like 150,000, like first time home buyer flips and um, give or take, you know, instead of doing that, we were having, 30 to 50,000 in a home. So we were doing three to five houses with the same amount of private capital 
And, you know, we were able to not have to do all the bells and whistles on the renovations because we're not selling to a picky buyer. And then our buyer was cash typically. So the negotiations were different. Appraisals weren't an issue. So we just shifted the model to get away from the parts of the market that were getting tough. And the worst part in, in this market, because we didn't have skyrocketing prices that just absolutely fell out, you know, like other, like the coast. Yeah. But our issue was just that lack of qualified buyers. There was just, you know, people couldn't get qualified as easy because financing was tougher and inventory grew. But when you sell to a landlord buyer who's scared of the stock market and the world's crashing and the economies, they're wanting to dump their money into an income generating asset based investment. You know, we were, I mean, I, I, I was joking the other day a little bit, but I was talking to someone in a mastermind group I'm in and we were just discussing, like, we're sick of all the sellers thinking their houses are worth a million dollars. And we're like, I kind of wish the market would crash again a little bit <laughs> because <laughs> it was a lot easier to do business at that time. Yeah. Well now the market, you oh, know, no. we need to just, the, the lesson is we just need to shift our model again, right? We'll always be shifting our models depending on what the market's doing. And that's, you brought up some really, really good points there, Steve. Like, the the reason why you did not get hit, like everybody we interview, and maybe you're the first, did not get hit really hard during the market. I mean, maybe you struggled a little bit, but like most people uh, really struggled and got hit hard during the downturn. Alex didn't. I did. But uh, I think uh, you did fine, Alex, didn't you? No, I got hit on a couple houses. Right. Um, actually... No, I, I did. I got blasted and I realized it in the last, man, I sold, I think I sold that final house, one that I took subject to and moved into, it was a year and a half ago and I had to bring $80,000 to the table to get rid of it. So yeah, that's how I got hit. But Steve, <laughs> Steve stuck with the fundamentals. He shifted his model. He watched the market. He was a student of the market and he focused on the most important aspect of this business, which is sales. And that one of the beautiful things about real estate is the market, the real estate market does not turn on a dime. Unlike the stock market, the stock market overnight could be down 5%. Real estate is a much slower. It's such a big beast. It moves a lot slower. And people who were studying the market could see the warning signals ahead. They could see days on market going up, prices going down. They could see the uh, the inventory going way up. And so there were a lot of signs that you could see. Sean Terry, I don't know why I keep on talking about Sean. He tells this story of he was getting a haircut with his hairstylist, you know? And she starts bragging to him and to another person there about how she just flipped a deal and made 30, 40 grand. And he realized as soon as that, you know, if his hairdresser is making 30, 40 grand, he better get out of the market. So I love the fact, Steve, that you were focusing on sales, you were watching the market, you shifted your model, you focused on cash buyers, the ones who had the money, they were your real customers, and you emerged generally uh, unscathed. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, and definitely, I don't want to put too many roses, making everything look so rosy, but you're right. Like We grew through that period. My, just so you guys feel like in good company here, my big hit was in 2015 when I decided I realized my revenue was now 75% service-based. So my big getting killed was in 2015, my learning lesson about building a business around your clients versus around yourself, hmm. what you want. Interesting. <laughs> so I did have my get killed part, but we did, you know, we just removed the barriers. And it's funny that you brought Sean up a couple of times. I'm in the 
billionaire boardroom yeah. mastermind with him and Kent. And we were just having that. We were in Cabo at a meeting in February. We were just talking about that. And he's got such a cool, simplistic, we were doing something similar, but we just got rid of a lot of pieces of it and made it a lot easier just to watch the market. We just pull comps in six month segments and look at the average sale, the average days on market, and then the number of actives. And that is such a simple thing to do, but then just dump it in a spreadsheet and make a tab for every you know neighborhood you're tracking. It, it, right before your eyes, you'll see the average price per square foot change. You'll see the average amount of inventory, you know, the saturation rate, how many you're selling in six months versus how many are listed, the days on market. You can just watch it and you're right. We'll never get caught from the market shifting because we're watching it. And it's so simple to do, but most nearly nobody does it. I mean, I don't know. So many people I know that do the business don't, they just go by gut feel. Interesting. What are you doing right now? I mean, in the last couple of years, the market has shifted quite a bit. It's getting hotter. What are some of the things you're doing now to switch away from a service-based business? Well, I shut it all off within a pretty quick time frame at the end of 2014, going into 15, and went straight into wholesaling. And it, it only took, I, I've always been wholesaling, just turnkey wholesaling, right? Yeah. It just comes with a lot of extra work. So it wasn't hard. I did have to shift who we sell to a little bit, but it only took three to six months to really kind of ramp that back up and then revamp what we were doing partner with a broker instead of own a brokerage and things like that. So for the last year and a half, we've been focused on, I don't know, anywhere. It goes between 75 to 90% focused on wholesaling. Every once in a while we get a little bug and start rehabbing again. And then I think it's funny because almost everyone I know that does wholesaling at a bigger level says this, but when we say, if, if one of us comes in here wanting to rehab this house instead of wholesale, we need to punch the other one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Shut up. Wow. Well, why, well, Steve, why is that? To us, it's, when we look at the details, you know, I feel like I love rehabbing. And, but what I really love about it, and my business partner, Brian, and I kind of feel the same way. We love to see a house go from junk to nice and feel good about what we did. You know, it's a sense of accomplishment. It's very visual to open up a wall and put a nice kitchen in and, change the use of a property, you know, or the layout, you know, and that stuff is really good. And there's a nice sense of gratification there, like accomplishment that you don't get in wholesaling. But I think what we learned is that if you're going to do it, if you're mom and pop and you're going to do, I don't know, anywhere from two or three up to 10 or 12 a year, let's call it five to 10. I think you can do a pretty good job on your own and make a pretty good living depending on what market you're in. And, And that's enough business to standardize and buy in bulk and do some things. But I think if you get into that, which is kind of where we were teetering is get into like doing 15, 20, you get in quickly. I think you need a project manager. I think you need to take it more serious. In fact, one of the changing points was uh, when we first got into the boardroom group, Pat Precourt was at a meeting with us and we were talking about our rehabs and he asked us some questions and we had a weekly meeting for our wholesale business. And we were treating that like a business and tracking our metrics and you know, building staff and culture and doing all these things. And for our rehab, it's just like Brian and I just handle it. You know, like, oh, someone's got to go meet the siding guy or someone's got to run out and do this or let's just talk when when we can. We Oh, next time we talk, we need to decide what we're going to do on pricing. And we weren't treating it as a business. And I feel like if you're going to go from mom and pop and just making a good income on your own, if you're going to ramp it up, you have to treat it as a business. And Brian and I just weren't willing to 
build staff out and the marketing we would have to commit to and, you know, the overhead and, and the time away from the wholesaling business. Cause I think we all, we all only have so much time. And the more I've been doing the business, the more I focus on the amount of time I'm willing to put into the business. And I'm not willing to work, you know, 50, 60 hours a week. In fact, there's a lot of weeks where I don't even consider that I'm working 40. I mean, I'm on the phone or texting. We use Voxer a lot, but that's important to me. And so we just can't do two different things. So, you know, the money you make per hour was tenfold in wholesaling. So we decided to focus on that. I feel like it's more recession proof too. That's interesting. And yeah, like you, like you just said, you, you can in the amount of time that you can rehab a deal and make thirty, forty grand. You can wholesale the same, uh, you know, a similar number. You can wholesale some houses and make the same amount of money with a lot less risk. Management headache, now right? inventory is the key there, though. You have to have enough inventory to meet that. So I posted in my group the other day. Actually, I said, "Would you take twenty seven thousand dollars now on a wholesale?" Or would you go for a hundred in six to eight months from then? What would you do on the same deal? Are you asking me? Yeah, sure. Both of you. I mean, my opinion is that's close. We would potentially go for the hundred, but I think I think if we if we knew we could make it's our numbers somewhere between thirty to forty percent. If we can make thirty to forty percent of the back end number, it's which is guaranteed and within like thirty days, mm-hmm. we're gonna go with that. That's how we decide. If that was like 125 versus 25, that's a no brainer. We would do the flip. And that's why I said we focus like 75 to 90% on wholesale and we bounce in and out because there are opportunities where we can't pass up. But what we realized is if we didn't put a um, delineation in there, like this is our high, this is how we decide. We want to flip all of them because we love flipping, you know, rehabbing. Sure. (laughs) So we had to just come up with some way to just, checks and balance ourselves so we don't get stuck doing too many rehabs. I I I don't like rehabbing. Hmm. <laughs> the, Every the rehab deal I've I was talking there was money. actually new construction. Uh-huh. I would be more open to new construction than a rehab. Me too. But what do you think, Alex? I mean, what do you what's yeah. your opinion on that? Well, I'm building it. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, so if you start to – Alex, though, think about this. If you were to see the changes in the market that Steve was seeing back in 2006, 2007, yeah. would you have enough – doing what you're doing now with new construction and rehabbing, would you have enough time to get, to, out? to get out and to adjust? I think so. I'm not going super heavy. You know, there are people out there that are going like all guns a-blazing out there and trying to do like 50, 60 houses a year. I'm not trying to build a pipeline like that. I'm happy between 10 to 15 houses, new construction wise. I'll keep that going. And um, I don't see it being an issue. I mean, because the profit margins are built in, you get in trouble when you start going for lower profit margins, but you know, we're trying to shoot for about 50,000 on a house. And the question is after cost of money is paid and everything, could you sell that house for 50000 less and make zero and get out and be okay? And I think the answer is yes. But, but it is like the frog in the pot, right? It, the frog's yeah. in the water. It's warm. He's happy. Yeah. It's nice. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, that temperature starts getting turned up just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit, and then he's dead. So you got to watch out for that, too. <laughs> 
I think I saw a Mythbusters that demythed that Mythbusted that. Oh, it's not true, right? Oh, but there is <laughs> there is another story of two frogs that were swimming <laughs> in a barrel of milk, right? Uh-huh. And they were swimming and swimming, and and one frog just said, "I'm just going to quit and give up," and the other frog said, "No, don't quit, don't give up, keep going, keep going." And the guy, the other frog said, "I I'm done, I I quit," and he gave up and drowned, right, and died. The next day, the farmer came out and looked in the barrel, and there was one frog sitting on a pat of butter. Yeah, see, okay. Now, that is from the movie Catch Me If You Can, oh. and where Christopher Walken <laughs> said, two mice fell in a bucket of cream. Oh, that's and right. One mice, one <laughs> mouse struggled so hard that he was able to get out, and or the, and the other one walked out, and the other one drowned. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah, just like that. Just like that. <laughs> so, Steve... <laughs> Uh, what are you doing now? Like you're doing wholesaling. You said 75, 90% of your deals are wholesaling right now, right? Yep. How are you finding your deals? What marketing is working for you right now? We're 90, I don't, maybe not quite that much, 80 to 90% direct mail. You were talking about that earlier. I mean, we stick with that. And what's funny is to give you a test. I mean, I think the reason we were originally talking about doing a podcast and, and more connected is because when I was refocusing. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I got to tear this thing down, get rid of staff. And I wasn't keeping anyone. I mean, it just was, it would have been toxic to try to change people and do things. And I had a lot of the wrong people anyway, nearly all the wrong people. <laughs> That's one thing I learned, but the the two pieces the things I really grasped because I believe in training and coaching, I've always had, you know, if you remember this back in the day, when I got in, to the business. My first coaches were Dan Duran and um Oh yeah. Richard Roop. Oh <laughs> so, yeah. Look at that. <laughs> what is Old Richard Roop? Right what what are they doing these days? I I've don't even go into that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Never mind. Yeah, I think Richard's is working Richard's doing different things, but uh, <laughs> Okay, okay. <laughs> I haven't heard of I haven't heard anything about Dan. But um I did those guys I worked with those guys and I had EMF coaches and I've always done that. And I thought I just need to cling on to something here. So the two things that I invested some cash into, and like I said, I partnered with a guy named Brian that I had met through a Rio club that I run here. And you came and spoke at that with Jason Lucchese on our board now. And yeah, anyway, I met a guy there and I partnered up with him and I said, look, let's pay these guys. And it was you and Peter to just get Podio set up because I was using this convoluted other system before. And I thought, let's just get Podio set up for us and run with all that. And then the other thing was I got flipped to the freedom. I bought that just to have all the the stuff that Sean has out to have his documents and templates. And I just didn't want to go through and like sift and sort everything. And because I have a creative mind, that's kind of my strength is creativity, which is my kryptonite too at times. I just didn't want to try to go through and peel off out of 10 years worth of business. What should I pare down to myself and design this wholesaling business myself. So we invested in the group with you and Peter and we invested in stuff with Sean, which ultimately led to going to some events with him. And now we're in his, you know, boardroom mastermind group. And those pieces have really helped us. Nice. But the point is not only did I want to acknowledge, you know, you having a role in, you know, a big role in us getting started so quickly, we were doing deals in 30 or 40 days. Now, granted I had done, I don't over 400 <laughs> deals before that on my own, but it still was, I still could have sat there and tried to get everything figured out and do a million different things. 
And when we worked with you guys, we just started letting you guys do our postcards and you set up our podio and we just, you know, turned on the call system and had leads coming in in a couple of weeks. And then within two or three weeks, and yes, it helped because I knew what I was doing, but you know, we started closing deals. So we wow. were 30, 40 days in. And I think the the second month in, I think we did 15,000 in revenue, you know, and we didn't look back after that and just start growing. And we had a few months that first year, like, you know, we had a few like where we were gro- building up and we blanked a couple of times and it was more because we were hiring the wrong people and we turned all the phone calls over to them and then they were terrible. You know, and we literally lost our leads for like three weeks and, you know, we had some weird blips like that that we've got, we worked through after that. But, but anyway, that foundation of direct mail has worked and yeah, the responses are way down compared to what they were, especially when I used to do it way back when, Yeah, you know, earlier on, but it still works. And to your point, Alex, it's really funny. We just shifted over. We're four mailers in to Sean's big vision of the avatar list, he calls it, but it's really no criteria. None of the finer demographics. It's just pulling like the age of home range from this age to this age, the assessed value from this value to this value. And you increase a little more, you know, based on what you're trying to do because people's houses are assessed incorrectly. And then back to the year that they bought it, you know, how long have they owned it? And then that's like the big list. And that's and I think the goal, like everyone in our mastermind is how quickly can we get to where we send a hundred thousand mailers a month? And that's what everybody, that's the model that, those guys are all in our group. We're all working off of. And then from there you can add those demographics in, like the equity and some of the other things you talked about to kind of pair the list backwards. But the big list is, you know, it's that avatar. It's like, what's Sean says, the avatar of your most profitable deals, the age, the size, you know, whatever you just pull all those in your whole area. Don't worry if they're in distress or not, just pull all of them, you know, and market to that bigger group. So that's what we've been doing and it's working. And I keep hearing people, I have a tech background yeah. and I'm love technology and I'm so mad that we don't do any pay-per-click we have in the past <laughs> and it works, but we're not doing any of that. And I wish we were, because it's great, Alex, if that's working for you, I need to call you offline and ask you, Sean's always talking about what he's doing. And, you know, we just, we literally, people come to us because we have long-standing relationships, you know, hard money lenders foreclose and call us or realtors say, I can't sell this house. The guy's done with it. He's dropping price, 20 grand, you know? And uh, other than that, we don't look at Craigslist and other things. I mean, we just do direct mail and we have relationships with people. What kind of, you know, I think about that and it would be cool to send 100,000 postcards a month, but I kind of cringe when I hear that because that means I have to have a big team. What do you guys think is a team, what kind of team is required to to handle that kind of a business, fifty thousand postcards a month, you're looking at maybe forty five thousand dollars a month in direct mail expense. What do you guys think? It's a big nut. Yeah, yeah. I, I we do a lot. Of, I mean, we do our blended average with postage and everything between postcards and yellow letters is probably more like fifty five to sixty cents a piece or less, even with the purchase of the name. So. If you're putting out 50,000, I mean, you're going to be doing more like 30,000 cost. I can't, we can do the math a little quicker, but, but I think the real thing is when you do the, the, one thing about the avatar list is your response rate goes down in in a way. So we do have a little bit lower calls, but the amount of the the quality of the calls goes down. So your follow-up becomes way more important because think about it. When you mail to the distress list, those people 
want to sell have a lot more propensity to sell because they're distressed. When you mail to the general population, just because they own a, the kind of house and they probably have equity that you want to do, we get a ton of people calling saying, no, thanks. Like, please take me off your list. Um, yes. Usually a lot nicer. <laughs> usually like, Oh, I don't, I'm really surprised that you guys want to buy this house. I don't know why, but we're doing things like trying to ask them, well, if you don't want to sell, you must like the neighborhood. And we really do like that neighborhood. So, you know, do you know of anyone who is in trouble on the house and on the block that wants to sell, or is there any eyesore houses you wish were fixed up? So we try to ask for referrals, but follow-up becomes way more important that we just churn through these quicker when you're doing the bigger lists, mm-hmm. you know, with less demographics. So we're getting about a percent response rate on average, you know, so for every thousand calls that are going out, you're getting 10. So if you had a hundred thousand going out, you'd be getting a hundred, you know, calls or a thousand calls. Really low so, so, so say that true. again, say that again, every thousand postcards you're sending out, you're getting about 10 calls, right? 10 calls. Yep. And about five of those are good. Okay. Five of them are like, take me off your list. And of those five, saying. what's, what's the likelihood of you getting a deal out of those five? We end up inspecting three of those. Okay. And we do like one and a quarter, one and a half deals on that. So our, our, we're way ahead of an industry average. I feel like we're more like one in 10 leads, one in 12 leads turns into a deal. That's really good. A lead is, define a lead. Someone who actually owns a house and they have an interest in talking to you about selling it, even if they're like, I need a hundred grand and it's only worth 10,000, mm-hmm. still a lead. Because we can't create the way that I train people in our team is we can't create qualification, but we can create motivation. Yeah. So someone calls and that it's not a qualified lead. It's hard. You could talk some people into it, but that's what we let the follow-up systems do is just nurture people. But I don't care what someone says. I mean, Dan used to say it all the time. If there's equity, go. Oh yeah. That was beat into my head in the first coaching program. If you're, you might be one of the only people that doesn't try to buy the house over the phone and you show up in person and just listen to their story because that's all they want to do is be heard. You know, all of a sudden they're asking 50 and it turns into 25 because they got to pay off a medical bill. Or it turns into a creative financing deal, right? Yeah, that's definitely for sure. Are you doing any creative financing deals like lease options or sub twos? Just a few, mostly seller finance stuff. In fact, recently we did a cool one where we wholesaled it, but we just negotiated, you know, a deal to take so much down and pay on with so much interest over time. And then we just increased that by a margin, the sale price. And so, you know, if we added 10,000 to the sale price, the buyer brought 10,000 more down. So we offered to pay 13,000 down because that's what a guy needed on a property. And we, and he wanted 40,000 and we went to a buyer and said, Hey, will you pay 50,000 for this? We can creatively finance it. And uh, he'd been buying from us and said he was low on cash, but he wanted to buy more. So he kind of, you know, put the radar up that, hey, I'd be willing to buy more if I could get some financing. So we hooked him up with some banks. He was working on that, but this deal came up in a neighborhood he liked. So it took quite a bit of extra creativity and time, but he put 23000 down and paid 50000 And we agreed to pay forty and thirteen down to the seller. So we just kept the 10000 difference at closing. Nice. And it's still a wholesale deal. And that's one thing that I don't know if this will help people listening, but I used, I, I, I have shiny objects. I'm a recovering shiny object syndrome <laughs> sufferer. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm a lot better. I know you too. You are too, Joe. I am, but I'm a lot better at it now. But what I realized is like when I would go to these courses or seminars or whatever, 
I learned that I would just take a nugget away and kind of understand the high level and know which path to go if I need to do that. So now instead of like creating a whole short sale business or creating a whole seller financing business, you know, I don't dive into that stuff and I haven't for eight or 10 years. I was just the first, you know, two or three years I was in the business, but I was wanting to learn everything. But lately, you know, the last several years, if I hear something, I just kind of data bank it and I like to read. So I'll spend some time understanding, but then I wait and I use it as a tool instead of a whole new business strategy. It ends up being a tool, like a lever for me that if a deal comes along and I need to negotiate a short sale or I need to negotiate seller financing and it's all still under the precipice of us making a wholesale fee, then I'll use those tools. Yeah. So, I, I, I always say you got to have, well, I learned it from Ron LeGrand. You got to be a transaction engineer, right? So you got to just have different yeah. tools to make the most money on each particular situation. But building a whole business around something then completely takes your focus in that direction. And then you become ineffective in other ways. But I agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah, that's well said. It's, it's about, it's about focus. So Brian and I, we, when we work on things, what we spend time and effort on is, is this going to create more sellers for us to talk to? And is it going to add more buyers to our database to put deals in front of? I mean, at the end of the day, we know some things are, you know, we do it because we have to, because of the business. And there's some things that we just like doing. I probably spend more time on marketing things than I should sometimes. But at the end of the day, we just need to make sure that we're going to have more sellers calling us and we're going to have more people in a database to put deals in front of when we get them on contract. And if we use that backdrop for all of our decision-making, it helps us a lot. Kind of like the whole, you know, rule on when you rehab versus when you wholesale. It's just kind of having this rule. Like every time some cool idea comes up, we just gut check it with, you know, more sellers, more buyers. Good. Is it helping us with that or does it just sound cool? That's really good advice. That's really good advice. Well, it took me 12 years to figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to ask you, Steve, about follow-up. You'd mentioned when you're doing that kind of mail um, to that kind of a list, follow-up is really important. So what, what is some of the follow-up that you think people need to do? Well, yeah. What kind of follow-up do people need to do? Well, in general, I think follow-up depends on your volume, right? And what level you're at. So where we're at with so many, because our because quickly, even with you guys, when we started out slow with marketing, I think we were just sending out 1,500 mailers a month at first. You know, even with that, that built up in, in not, not a very long time, three to six months, we had several hundred people, you know, in a database. And it's hard to manage that manually. So if you're more mom and pop, I think you can just use a contact management database and you talk to someone, you log, you know, their, their notes and, and you get their contact info and you put a reminder to call them. If they seem hot, you might call them in 30 days, two to four weeks. And if they're like, I don't know, I got a tenant and they're moving out in June, I'll, I'll try to decide what I'm going to do. You might want to put a note to call them in June. Hey, I know your tenants are moving out. So I think it's kind of, when you do it that lower level, you can be really laser focused with it. Like this person just said, I don't think I'm going to sell, but you know, I don't know. Nah, I'm not going to do it. And you're thinking this, is this person, if I caught him at the right time, so I'll just keep sending the mailers, you know, you might not even call them again. You just keep them on the mailing list. But when it gets to more of a volume game, which I think, you know, some, many of the people on your podcast are probably doing the irregular mailing. What we do is we continue to mail to the same list. We mail six different pieces and that's just to catch different personality types. 
you know, branded versus unbranded or letters versus postcards. So we mail to the same list six times before we recycle it. Okay. And then that's, you know, kind of following up on our general list. But when we have leads come in, what we do after we basically get a hold of them and we don't have a deal, they go, some get followed up faster than others, depending on the, what level, you know, of motivation they're at. But basically we're slide dialing and text messaging. Interesting. And the ones that we have a good connection with, we may put it, we still put a note in there. Like we bought a house off someone and they own four properties and they're like, I just want to get this one done. And then I'll, you know, might work on the other ones. That person's still just going to get a manual task, you know, to call them in 30 days in Podio, but we slide out. So this has kind of been one thing we learned. So when you slide dial, which if people don't know, it's just an automated way to load a bunch of phone numbers in. Sure. And then you send a voice broadcast to them. And then it's funny because they always think like, I don't know what's wrong with my phone. It didn't ring, but I have a voicemail. I hate this dumb phone. <laughs> you know, and they're like, oh, that's because your phone didn't ring. But we send those out. And it's, the cool thing about slide broadcast is it tells you which ones connect and which ones don't. So landlines, you can't do this with. It's usually just cell phones. So we have to do different things. So we actually slide broadcast everyone after 30 days just as a general follow-up. And then we know which ones are cell phones and which ones aren't. And then we, the ones that are cell phones, they go through a progression of a couple different slide broadcasts. And the slide broadcast is very, it's personal. You know, it's like, hey, this is Brian or Steve calling from Redevelop Indy. And, you know, I know we were working on that house with you. And I just want to know if you still had it and you're still interested in selling it. Or, hey, I was calling because we're trying to buy one more house this month and you know, we worked with you before and it didn't work out, but just want to see if anything changed. So these people think they're very personal. Nice. So we, we do a succession of those. And then a text message is very similar. Like once we know the slide broadcast hits, we know it's a cell phone, then we can text it. And then when we text it, we just say the same kind of thing. Hey, I need to buy one more house. I like your neighborhood. Like they, Now you're doing this through Podio with the slide dial? No, we do slide broadcast directly. I export, oh, you just do it directly through the soft through the interface? Yeah. So we export out a Podio based on, you know, tagging things and we do it and then we do an Excel file to slide broadcast. And the same thing, we use easy texting. We pull it out and then we upload it to easy texting and we use those interfaces. I tried to have everything like Zapier and yeah, well, we flow. And I love that. I got caught in the details of trying to make everything like automated. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, turned, I turned it off. <laughs> you sit there we and you're just like, you have the biggest rush of energy when something works and you get more excited about that than a deal. Right. <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. That's for me. And Brian's like, how's this going to create more money for us? Like, what are you doing? But yeah, when we do a purchase agreement now, I know it seems crazy, but we just open up a word document template and we modify it ourselves and save it as a PDF and sign it with DocuSign and we email it or, you know, print it. It's not all automated <laughs> for us. I've always said this sometimes I haven't always said this. I, I say this a lot now. Sometimes the best automation you can have is a virtual assistant, right? Just get somebody to yep. manually do it for you. I'll tell you, that's another thing I want to give you props for. You were taught one of your podcasts. You're talking about using Voxer to, instead of like pimping everything out in Podio, you would actually just like run a lead and then box a message to a virtual assistant. Like, Hey, update this lead changes, put this note in. Yeah. But we implemented box in our business with our team Boxer, it, it literally changed. It's eliminated like 90% of our email and, and fi at least 50% of our phone calls. 
it's unbelievable. In fact, we had to dial it down because we had a Vox channel for like everything, but it's unbelievable. Like how much boxers helped us wow. not have to be on the phone or send email. That's good to hear. <laughs> oh yeah. Cause it's got 15 second videos too. So we could be in a house and like, look here, the furnace is, you know, leaking water or like there's a broken window in this house I'm in or, you know, whatever and getting, putting the pictures right in and you can click a geo button, like track your location. Yeah. Yeah. Made a huge difference. I mean, probably not as big as Podio, but I mean, it's made a noticeable change in our business using Voxer for communication. That's for sure. And you have good VAs behind you. Are these local assistants or virtual assistants in the Philippines? And we're not using, where everybody's hired now. We're not using any VAs right now. So they're all local in your office. Yeah. Or work from home. Uh, do they live in Indianapolis or, in, you know, in the yeah. U.S.? Okay. Yep. We even had a guy that was in Muncie a couple hours north um, of Indy. And that was just even hard. He came down once a week for our team meeting. And I don't think it matters either, either virtual or not. And I do believe that virtual can work, but we tried to grow. We had such quick initial success because we knew, we knew what we were doing when we started this, you know, second version of the business. And we skipped a bunch of steps and got easily got deals done, you know, multiple deals a month right away. And it just all kind of worked. And once we started plugging people in, we didn't have good systems. So about six months ago, in fact, Brian and I went to uh, one of Sean's events, and that's when we decided to get in the mastermind But with him. But we came back, and we're like, we're firing everyone, <laughs> getting rid of our VAs, <laughs> changing our staff. And we did it methodically, but, you know, it was just um, we were we were growing for the sake of growing, and we yeah. realized scaling is different. Sometimes scaling is actually pairing things back, you know, lopping things off the side to scale. So we wanted to scale and not grow. And my first business, the first 10 years of business was growing just for the sake of growing. And um, that's a terrible, I hate metrics that are about like growth, like just big numbers. Huh. Like you're just watching how big, I, I like the ratio aspect, profitability, you know. Your return conversion. on your return on investment, return on time. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I don't knock virtual assistants. I, in fact, we used um, Robert Nichols' group. Uh, yeah. Well, if anything, right if, if anything, maybe you let your local assistants use your virtual assistants to do the data mining, the data entry, the online research and things like that, right? Good idea, yeah. That's what we do right now. Alex, what do you, do you still have your virtual assistant that you use? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you get one that has uh, very good English, you really can't tell that they are in the Philippines, you know? A few months ago, I interviewed one of my s- students just crushing it right now. And he's not making big money. I mean, like his average net, net, net profit on each deal after all of his expenses and profit splits, because he partners with local wholesalers, is about $2,200, okay? But he's doing an average of two to three deals a month, and he's only working about 30 minutes a week. He said there's two main keys to make this happen for him. And he still works his full-time job. He loves his full-time job. He doesn't want to quit. He's in social work. There's two main keys. Number one is a really good virtual assistant. And number two, good local wholesalers to partner with. And I thought, you know, just keeping it really simple like that, it's so easy to complicate this business, isn't it? And to think that you have to have all these complicated things. You just need good people. Good people. You know, it sounds like he did though, Joe. Like I said, I seriously think one of the biggest takeaways from people that have gone through the ups and downs and long, long-term business have made it through, you know, the five to 10 year thing. Yeah. He built a business around himself. He want he likes his day job. He wants to do it. He doesn't want to spend time on this. 
mm-hmm. VAs are more important to him, you know, and Brian and I know how to negotiate well. So we've added other pieces to the part, you know, and the lead management part, Brian still handles a lot of that. And I tag team with it, but it's about building it around like who you are and what you want to do. And I think when you do that, it's easier to be successful. That's really good. Really good. This has been a good podcast. This has definitely been a really good podcast because I think, Steve, people just need to be reminded of these simple, basic things. Yep. Awesome. We are, uh, Alex, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. Do you have any other questions you want to ask, Steve? No, no questions. Great podcast. Good information. Not necessarily even just basic, but uh, good information from a scaling standpoint and not trying to build this huge corporation, but just stay profitable, which is a key. Uh-huh. And knowing your numbers, right? I mean, Steve obviously knows his numbers. And if he didn't know his numbers, he wouldn't be able to talk about this kind of stuff with any authority. Yeah, you'd have no idea. That's, that's the way my other business was. It grew big. The last thing you want to do is scale bad numbers, right? Yes. Yeah. It just it, it grows your problems. It magnifies your problems when you grow, not knowing your numbers. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I have <laughs> I have enough problems. Yeah, without without uh trying to magnify them. Oh anyway, Steve, so how can people get a hold of you, Steve? If they want more information, maybe to uh partner with you on deals, to partner with you on some lending, or you know, what 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 are you up to these days? How can people reach you? Yeah, I think um two different ways. The easiest is probably our, our website's just redevelopindy.com. Okay. They can just go in and submit their contact info that way. And we're also, we're launching a podcast that's going to be called the business behind flipping. Awesome. So it'll still be another three to four weeks before it's out, you know, as we air this, but I think by the time, you know, people are listening to this after the fact, they can find that on iTunes and it's the business behind flipping. And again, and there'll be a website, uh, businessbehindflipping.com. And the whole premise is not for newbies so much, but it's really for, again, like what you're just saying, Alex about scaling the business and doing it the right way. And, you know, I think the old saying that hobbies cost you money and businesses make you money. (laughs) That's kind of the premise behind it. And it's all the lessons learned over the years and, you know, all the things we're doing that treat this thing like a business rather than than a hobby or a self-employment job. And that'll be cool for people to check out. Yeah. And then, like I said, if they put their contact info and they put their email in on our page, when you submit it, the second page has a box that says, how can we help you just say like her Joan, Joe's Joan Alex's podcast and want to talk or whatever. Then, you know, just do that. And Brian and I are definitely always available to talk shop. That's good. Really good, man. Steve, Steve Richards from Indianapolis. Your website is redevelopindy.com and your new podcast business behind flipping.com will be the website, right? But the the podcast would be called the business yeah, the be business good. behind flipping. I like that name a lot. That's really good. I think you're going to do well with that. Cool. Thanks. Hopefully. Well, I definitely will definitely be in touch to get you on a on an episode of it if I can get you to pair off enough time from your lifestyle business. So, <laughs> man, lately, last couple of months, man, I haven't had a lifetime. I haven't had a lifestyle business last few months. <laughs> I've been so <laughs> busy, all these different projects. Maybe I need to uh, step back a little bit. Alex has got the lifestyle business. Oh, do I? Yeah, you never work, <laughs> man. <laughs> you got everybody else doing all that stuff for you. Come on now. No, but this has been a good podcast, Steve. We sure appreciate you taking the time. You, you're a busy guy, and you've taken the time to be on the podcast. And I uh, appreciate it, man. It's been really good. 
Yeah. Thanks for having me. I, I always enjoy your guys' podcast, so keep it up. I'll definitely be listening. Awesome. Thank Thanks, you. Steve. Good chatting with you. All right. Yep, you guys too. Thanks. See you all later. Listen, guys, if you want the show notes, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com, realestateinvestingmastery.com, get the show notes, and get our Fast Cash Survival Kit. Also, leave us a review. Check if it you, out. Yeah, it's, it's free. If you don't like it, we'll give you your money back. And we, you know, <laughs> on there, we talk about how Alex does deals with equity, how I do deals without equity, how we'd use our virtual assistants, and how we do our marketing. It's all really, really good stuff. Also, uh, leave us a review, if, guys. If you like this podcast, please leave a review. We'd really appreciate it. Let us know that you're out there and uh, you like the show. We've been doing this now for six years, Alex. Six, I think Quite we, amazing. I think we started in the spring of 2011. And uh, so we're going to be around for a long, long time. We've got many more things to talk about, many more shows to do. So let us know that you like the show and uh, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com to listen to previous episodes, to get the show notes of this. And uh, that's it. Good. Thanks a lot, guys. We'll see you all later. Take care.